numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, it's enough. And he came out and went, and as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Let me pray. Father, take this time, take this moment, take your word. And change us, I pray. Thank you for your amazing patience and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you for your faithfulness to us. Thank you for being with us right now. Thank you for promising to work in our midst. And I pray that, Father, you would raise the level of anticipation in our hearts right now because what we know for certain is you are here that's not up for debate what we know for certain is you are dwelling by your holy spirit in the hearts of your children and there's no doubt about that what we know for certain is right now if you are for us who can be against us and because of the cross you are fully for us in this moment And so, Father, move. Set free those who are bound. Encourage those who are downcast. Accompany and come alongside those who feel estranged and alone. And, Father, strengthen us all for your name's sake. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. So this morning, we're going to begin basically a series within a series. Um, We're in the series uh, of the book of Luke, and yet what we're going to do as we now sprint towards Easter Sunday of the resurrection, and as we go through the last few chapters of the book of Luke, we're going to frame it in light of a series within a series, a series entitled Perfect. Perfect. You don't have to be because He is. What we are going to be able to see over these next several weeks is that Jesus is who we could not be. And therefore, although the demand is perfection, we have fallen woefully short. And so he has been who we could not be. And therefore, our standard is that we trust in his perfection. Therefore, we can walk in confidence. That even though we are imperfect, he will use and delights to use imperfect people. So we're honing in on today Jesus' perfection, who he is. And I think it's helpful as we kind of set contrast. So today is what we're going to do is we're going to contrast between we who are imperfect with he who is perfect. We're going to put contrast together because contrast really help things stand out. You've heard it regularly, you've experienced it yourself. If you are in an extremely dark room and all of a sudden there's a crack and yet on the other side of that door, a crack in the door and on the other side of that door is a brilliant light, it's going to just cut through and it, it reminds you of how dark it used to be and also how bright that light is. When I'm playing basketball... Um, there are some guys when I go to Halifax and I play ball over there, I do a pickup game someplace... And I I show up, and I'm probably a D-level player when I'm out there, but I have A-level fun, okay? So I go out there, and I'm playing ball, and there will be some guys who played ball in college. 
And when they're out there playing with me and with others, what you begin to see is a stark contrast between our abilities. They barely miss. I can't guard them. They blow right by me. There is a sense of they stand in stark contrast. And then I began to think like, okay, and these guys couldn't cut it. These guys didn't make it out of their you know, Division Three college experience. They didn't make it to the NBA. And what contrast it would even be between those guys and that guy. What we are is we are less than D-level players. And we have greater than the greatest of NBA players. We have a massively stark and shocking contrast between sinful humanity and perfect Savior. And so what we hope to see in this time is not only looking at our imperfections to dwell there and soak in self-pity, but allow that to be a springboard to praise Him for who He is, to marvel at His ability and His amazing love. So we're going to look at it three ways. We're going to look at our imperfect understanding and His perfect plan, our imperfect resistance and His perfect surrender, our imperfect devotion and His perfect prayers. So if you hear the contrast, imperfect versus perfect, we're going to start with imperfect understanding and his perfect plan. Now I was watching a movie the other day and sometimes I get frustrated at movies that do this, but I'm going to give it a swing and I'm going to do a sermon like this. You know, it's when they start out at the end and they build up the anticipation and then they drop you off a cliff not finishing the story and then say, eight hours earlier. And then they zip all the way back, you know, and then they go through the entire movie. Well, that's what we're going to do. So we're going to start at the end and then go all the way back to the beginning to let it be really, push us to be really excited about the end. So here's where we're going to start. The second, or the first two points are really short. The third point is longer. Because we're going backwards, okay? That's why I didn't start where the text starts. Now, if you're totally confused and totally worn out, well, good. Welcome to Daylight Savings Time. Verse 35, here we go. Imperfect understanding, perfect plan. Jesus said to them, when I sent you out with no money bag and knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? What is about to happen here as he runs into his final hours of life? He's reminding them back in the earlier chapters of Luke when he sends out his followers two by two, 72. He sends them out to go and to proclaim the good news of the coming kingdom. When he sends them out, he gives a bizarre request. Don't take anything with you. It's a bizarre request. Don't take a knapsack or don't take a money bag. Don't take a knapsack or sandals. Why did he do it? It was to show that he was provider. So he asked the question here. When I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? And he wanted them to be able to articulate it. So what are those next words? They said, what? Nothing. Okay, good. Okay, we're going to talk here this morning, okay? So let's try it again. I'm in verse 35, okay? You can't keep up with the first verse where it's not boding well for multiple verses later. Okay? When I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? And they said, nothing. Did they lack anything? No. They lacked nothing. Okay? So, he wanted them to say it. To be reminded that what? God is their provider. God has always taken care of them. I am always there for you. And this is how God's plan regularly works. He is setting it up to say, you can trust me. You can trust me. And this is, this is just what we see throughout the Bible. He says, Abraham, go. Go to a land I'm going to tell you. That's not how I like to operate. 
I like to know the land that you're telling me to go to, how long it will take, what I need on my journey, what struggles I will encounter on my way. Abraham, go to the land I will tell you. He says, people of Israel, cross the Red Sea. They look at the sea. Hey, that's pretty deep. Don't worry, I'm going to split it for you. Okay, how do I know the walls of water are not going to fall on my head? You don't. Just walk through. I'll take care of you. This is how he works. He says, Joshua... Go and face those enemies. Well, how do I know that the people of Jericho are not going to crush me? You just march around it seven times. It just sounds crazy. Daniel, you're going to have to live with lions. I'll take care of you. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you're going to be in a fiery furnace. But I'll be with you. Over and over and over. He regularly calls us to do things that we just would not have written the plan. And he says, you can trust me. What did you lack when you went out? Nothing. Nothing. And I look back at our church's history and in four years we had nine locations. If I would have been told that at the beginning, I probably would not have wanted to even start. Nine locations, and then we're at the IMAX theater for a season, and then we're here. God only knows what's next. Just go. Follow me. And he just asks every one of us, every one of us who do not know the future, did you lack anything? Anything that you really needed, anything that you needed for provision, did you lack it? They say nothing. And so now he calls them to the next step of obedience. See how crucial it is to rehearse God's faithfulness in the past in order to be encouraged to take steps in the future. Did you lack anything? They said nothing. Verse 36. So he said to them, but now something different is about to happen. And I want you to be prepared for that something different. So once again, once you fig- think you figured out all of God's plans, it's going to change on you. Because he wants us on our face. He wants us near to him. He wants us calling out to him, not operating in our own strength. And so he says, but now let the one who has a money bag take it. Likewise a knapsack. Let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. Because I tell you, the scriptures are getting ready to be fulfilled. What's the scripture that's getting ready to be fulfilled? It is, and he was numbered with the transgressors. The Savior of humanity is about to be counted as a sinner, even though he wasn't a sinner. And they need to be prepared for it. It means there's going to be all kinds of oppression and attack, and he wants them to be physically ready. But also, he's about ready to flip the script on them. So he tells them what? To get a sword, right? Sell the cloak, get a sword. Well, later on in verse 38, he says, and he said to them, or they said to him, look, Lord, we got two swords. That's enough. You got a lot of people that are getting ready to follow him into his betrayal, and they say, we got two swords. He says, that's enough. That's enough. Enough for what? First of all, I do think this speaks probably to permission of self-defense there are several passages in the scriptures where Paul is found in a courtroom giving a defense for his um, the reason he is there there's self-defense is not necessarily evil but what he ends up doing is he flips the script because what we're going to see in next week's sermon as they were coming and they were about ready to arrest Jesus, what happens? Is now the time for the swords? That's what they say. Peter says, not <laughs> time to ask questions. Whack! Cuts off Malchus's ear. And Jesus says, stop! And if I were Peter, I'd be like, why? You just told me to take swords. Is this not what they're for? Jesus begins to flip the script. No, it's not what they're for. I'm trying to teach you something. 
He wanted them to have swords in hand so that the moment that looked like it was the right time for the swords, he could teach them a lesson. What's the lesson? My kingdom is not primarily about self-defense and attack. It's about self-sacrifice and forgiveness. You follow that? Why would he have them take a sword and then tell them not to use it? Because he's got a greater agenda to teach them. Christians are meant to be known for their shocking forgiveness, their shocking love, their ability when someone strikes them on one cheek to offer the other this sense of radical self-sacrifice for the good of another. He's establishing there is a new kingdom. My work is a new work. The world says revenge is how it should work. Fight back. Hurt. If you've been hurt, Jesus says, no, I just wanted you to have the sword so I could tell you what this is not for. Because my kingdom is one not of self-defense and attack. My kingdom is one of self-sacrifice and forgiveness. And so what do you see? You begin to see that they didn't fully understand his perfect plan. They had an imperfect understanding of about what was to come forth before them, but he has a perfect plan. And that perfect plan led to his own death and the forgiveness of sinners. But it was a perfect plan. A perfect plan that included all kinds of mess. Were it not for sin... That plan would not have been executed. Were it not for pain, that plan would not have been executed. The plan includes victory. The plan includes hope. The plan includes all that mess, but it is a perfect plan. And so when you look at your life, one filled with pain, one filled with struggle, one filled with a great awareness of your imperfection, Sin that you commit, sin committed to you, there is a sense that you will not thwart God's perfect plan. Hear this. His plan is not contingent upon our perfection, but upon His. And that's meant to set you free. Imperfect understanding, perfect plan. And His perfect plan will always move forward, even though there's so much mess involved in our everyday lives when you don't understand you can trust him that's what he's seeking to teach us and so as he says here are two swords verse 38 look is that enough yep it's enough let's go verse 39 and he came out and went and as was his custom He goes to the Mount of Olives. This was a place where he would regularly pray. It was a place on the side of a hill that would overlook the Temple Mount. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And now what we begin to see is their imperfect resistance and his perfect surrender. Their imperfect resistance their imperfect fight against temptation and his perfect surrender. See what the text says? Pray that you may not enter into temptation. What was the temptation? Probably the temptation to fall asleep. But also probably the future temptation to run away from allegiance to Jesus. The temptation to deny him. Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And then he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt and prayed. And as he prays, he says this, verse 42, some of the most famous words in all of the scriptures. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. If you are willing, remove this cup from me. And what you begin to see is what Paul Miller in his book, A Praying Life, begins to hold out so beautifully. It is the need to ask whatever and surrender everything. 
This is what encapsulates prayer. And this is what you see right here. I'm going to ask whatever. And Jesus says, if you're willing, take it because I don't want it. It's just the calling out with the raw emotion. It's the calling out with all the fragility of the heart. This is what prayer is. Ask whatever. Don't camouflage it. Don't, don't dress it up. Just ask in your rawness. Ask with your raw throat. Ask with your angry heart. Ask in your deep sadness. Ask. After the Lord's Supper in the book of John, he says, Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do. Whatever, 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 ask. And so he says, if you're willing, Father, do it. Do it. Take this cup from me. What's the this cup? This cup regularly in the Old Testament is the cup of God's wrath reserved for his rebellious people. The cup of God's wrath that should rightfully be poured out upon those who rebel against him and he is saying remove that from me because this this path was not only going to cost him his life through a path of ridicule and excruciating pain but the wrath of God towards sinners was going to be poured out upon him hear this the cosmic consequences were far more fearful than the physical ones the cosmic consequences were far more fearful than the physical ones. Yes, he was going to die. Yes, he was going to be ridiculed. Yes, he was going to be estranged on this earth. But what he was asking for in that moment was, Oh God, don't abandon me and pour out your wrath upon me. He's already left glory and the presence of his father to come down and to be, live among sinful humanity in all of our wretchedness and mess. And now he is pleading, oh God, please, if there's any other way, don't treat me as sinners should be treated. He has never known sin. Never known imperfection. Never known the taint of sin. And yet it was all going to be dump trucked upon his shoulders. Mine, yours, humanity's on his shoulders from all time. And the father was going to pour out his full wrath upon his son. Not just, I'm not going to be near you, but I will crush you. Because there is no other way for me to be just against sin and for me to be also Savior of sinners. There's no way. Jesus is like, please, if there's any other way, do it. Don't pour out the cup of your wrath upon me. If there's any other way, do it. But Jesus says, Nevertheless, verse 42, Not my will, but yours be done. I surrender completely. Do with me what you wish. How many times have you been led and you knew you were supposed to do something? You knew you were supposed to obey. You knew you were supposed to make that phone call. You were supposed to do business in a certain way. You were supposed to say a kind word. You were supposed to apologize. You were supposed to not look at this. You were supposed to do this. How many times did you know that that was supposed to be the case? And yet when you were brought to the apex and point, will you surrender? You say, no, my will, not yours. If there were ever a moment, other than the temptation in the wilderness, this was that moment for Jesus. And only to cement his perfect obedience, he says, I'm going to ask because I don't want it, but I'm going to surrender because that's what I want the most. I want to follow. I want to do whatever you would have me do. I want to surrender. And so, you imagine this gut-wrenching prayer 
this moment of just emotional exhaustion in verse 43. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven strengthening him. That's not just reserved for our Savior. It's reserved for God's people. God sends angels unaware, it says in the book of Hebrews, to encourage us and strengthen us. He also gives us His Holy Spirit to encourage us. And in that moment, He reminded Him of His fatherly love, even though what was about to happen was His fatherly abandonment. And being in agony, it says in verse 44, and being in agony, He prayed more earnestly. Matthew kind of rolls out the narrative a little bit because what happens is He prays, And then he goes and finds his disciples asleep. Wake up so that you don't fall into temptation. Then he goes back and he prays more earnestly. And then he goes back and finds them asleep. And he says, wake up so that you don't fall into temptation. Pray. And he goes back and he prays more earnestly. Luke summarizes it by saying, and he prayed in agony more earnestly. But three times he did this. And that earnest prayer was so intense. There's really no way for us to fully know. We know it's physically possible, but we have no idea from the language here whether his prayers were so earnest he actually sweated blood or whether his prayers were so earnest it was just this sense of overwhelming agony and this is a way to communicate that agony. I know that the image strikes me. As it says, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Sweating profusely. Intense agony, going hard after God. And then it says in verse 45, when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples, found them sleeping for sorrow, and he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. So what do we see of them? They are fraught with imperfection. Not once, not twice, three times, they're found sleeping rather than praying. God says, stay awake, stay awake. And they're found asleep for sorrow. Sadness can do a lot of things in our heart, can it? Here, it led them to not obey. And so now, it says, rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. And then what we'll see next week is while he was still speaking, Judas leads an entourage to arrest him. Now, why in the world did Jesus have to hear no from the Father? You do see that, right? He prayed. Father, take it away. And the answer was, I'm not going to do that. Have you ever been there? Father, take it away. And his answer was, I'm not going to do that. Remember, imperfect understanding, he's got a perfect plan. We have imperfect resistance He has perfect surrender. And that perfect surrender had to lead him to the cross because we are filled with imperfect devotion. We are imperfect people. We are filled with sin. So there was no other way for imperfect people to find salvation than for the perfect Savior to go all the way to the cross. And so this is going to hit Rewind just a little bit. What was happening a few hours before this? You see verse 31. You see imperfect devotion. But you see the perfect prayers of the Savior. And he says, verse 31, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. Now we're beginning to see why did the Father have to say no 
to the Son? Why did the Son have to experience the wrath of the Father and have to die on a cross for my sin and yours? It was because we are sinful people. And what we begin to see is the sinfulness of Jesus' followers. Look at it. Simon, Simon. I don't know what to make of it, but Simon was his pre-conversion name. If you remember when he finally confesses, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. He says, you are Peter. And upon this rock, that's what Peter means, I will build my church. Satan has demanded to have you. So there's this sense of when sin enters into the world, Satan has this sense of authority. And that's why after the resurrection, Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given unto me. Because he died crushing sin, he rose from the dead, crushing death itself, and he says, all authority in heaven and on earth is mine. Satan has some sense of authority in this season because... He had to be defeated through the Savior on the cross. And he demanded to have you. The you there is not singular, it's plural. It's not Peter, it's all the disciples who were there. Satan has demanded to take you followers of Jesus, so they're all gathered there, but he's addressing the leader of the group, Simon. And he said, Satan has demanded that he takes you and shakes you like you would wheat and that that separates and scatters the wheat. He wants to shake and separate your faith from me. This is why Peter says, and he uniquely knows it in 1 Peter chapter 5, the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking to devour. Resist him. Because Peter knows what this is like. And here he says, Satan has demanded to have you, plural, that he might sift you, plural, like wheat. But I have prayed for you, Peter, singular. Jesus is saying, I have prayed for you. I'm praying for you, Peter, right now. That your faith may not fail. Now, a few things. One is, why in the world is Peter singled out? Well, throughout the book of Acts, Peter regularly, if you're on, on the, the marker of, of occurrences, he occurs um, two-thirds more than the other people that are leading the church. He is, might be called a first among equals. He is one who is kind of the spearhead of leadership for the early church. That's Peter. And so he addresses Peter here individually because he knows that Satan's method, if he can crumble the leadership, then the people will scatter. And I just petition you. I petition you. When you pray at home, when you pray with others in your community groups, when you pray, please, pray for your leaders. Pray for them. How many churches have crumbled because leadership has abandoned the faith? How many groups have dissolved because leaders have run away from Jesus? Moral failure? Struggles? Just suffering? Pray. Pray. This is real. Satan's temptation, Satan's aggression, Satan's delight to crush faith. This is not a fairy tale. This is reality. And oh, the responsibility upon you and upon me to rise up and to not fall asleep in sorrow, but to rise up in prayer and to plead with God to protect His people. What a role and what a privilege it is to pray. But the other thing we begin to see, the other thing we begin to see is that 
Jesus, he's going to allow this. But he's going to allow it this far and no further. And why does he allow it at all? Why does he allow this suffering at all to come to Peter at all? And I believe Charles Spurgeon says it best. He bruises those he uses. He bruises those he uses. Why is that? I want you to think about some pain you have gone through. Some suffering that God has allowed, purposed, whatever word you want to use there, into your life. What has that done? I can tell you what it's done in me. It's given me a lot of patience with other people in the midst of their pain. Before intense suffering, I was more self-righteous. Why don't you get over it? But when I had to go through it myself, a little more patient with the pain of other people. And what about suffering? What does it do to your understanding of life in general? It gives you a sense of perspective. Gives you a sense of perspective. It makes you hate with a deeper hatred sin around you and suffering in the world. But it also makes you love. It makes you love those who are going through some similar pains that you have gone through, but it also, what it does in my heart, it makes me love Jesus because he has met me in depths that I have never seen, never seen until I had gone through suffering. It creates dependence. It creates desperation. God bruises those he uses because Peter needed to experience what we will see in the weeks to come. He needed to see that he was not able to sustain his life on his own. He was imperfect. He denied the Savior three times. He needed to see that so that he would be ready to lead. He would be humble. And he would lead. And so... He says here, verse 33, Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. (laughs) What does this speak to? You and I have an overestimation of our abilities. I can handle this. I got this. Usually when you say that, you're on the brink of falling on your face. I got this. I don't need your help. Lord, I'm ready. I'm ready to go. And I believe Peter meant this with all his heart. I'm going to be okay. I'm going to follow you. I'll never abandon you. And Jesus said, Peter, I'm going to tell you something. Before the rooster will crow, this day, you will deny me three times. Imagine how that just hit him. No, I'm going to... Can you imagine being told that something was going to happen? Jesus didn't do this, but this is like the ultimate I told you so moment, right? Ain't going to do it, and then you do it. And it's just like, ah, I hate this. Well, there was a strong overestimation of himself. But as we also all have, we have an underestimation of Christ. Because Jesus says, what is the solution for our stumbling. What is the solution for Peter's denial later on? It is a praying Savior. Look at this. But I have prayed for you. Done deal. Happened. That your faith may not fail. You might stumble, but you will not abandon. Look at how confident, how sure, how loving Christ is. I have prayed for you. Are your prayers imperfect? You better believe it. What gives us any sense of hope that we imperfect people can go to God in prayer? Answer, the perfect prayers of Jesus. That's how you can go to him. That's how your imperfection is overcome is because he's not imperfect. He is perfect. I don't go to God because I believe that 
I've got it all together. I go to God because I believe He does. And so, I think this is why Paul says in Romans 8, if God is for you, what more do you need? If God is for you, who can be against you? If Jesus has prayed for you, then it's sure. You're confident. And friends, I want you to know something. He is praying for us right now. Listen to what Hebrews chapter 7 verse 25 says. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him because or since he always lives to make intercession for them. Do you see how effective his prayers are here? Peter didn't run away from the faith. Instead, he became a martyr for the faith. His prayers happened. They were secure. That was one prayer for one person. Now he's saying, I am always interceding for you. That's why we have a confidence and a hope and a victory that though we face all kinds of things, he will get us to the end. Our confidence is in a Savior who is always making intercession. And so he says, verse 32, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned again. It's just, it's not a question. You're going to turn back to me. And when that happens, I will use messy, imperfect you to strengthen the others. That's what he says, right? And when you have turned to grin, strengthen your brothers. Because when you have fallen on your face and somebody has picked you up, you want to help others not fall on their face as well, right? You want to help others. Some of you have experienced some horrific sin, sin that you've committed or sin against you. Some of you have fallen on your face Spiritually speaking, some of you are still there, living in a sea of regret. But I want you to hear this passage right here. Turn again to Him. Turn again. Turn away from sin and turn to Him. And He wants to use you to strengthen others. God comforts you, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, in order that you might comfort others in similar afflictions. Some of you need to get some egg on your face and use your horrible story to encourage others who are going through some similar things. Because when you show off your weakness, it shows off God's strength. Now, Here's what we want to be clear of as we finish. When God says he's going to use messy people, disobedient people, you could read this and it almost sounds like he is somewhat cavalier towards sin. Oh, I told you to stay up and pray, but oh, you didn't. No big deal. Let's keep moving. I told you not to deny me, but oh, you did it. I'll just forgive and move on. I think there's two things that we need to understand. Two things that are misnomers. Two mistakes that followers make. And I heard this in a sermon by a man named Kevin DeYoung. And he holds out these two main ideas. I found them very helpful and I think they apply right here. One is that obedience or good works. Here's the misunderstanding. Good works are not necessary unto salvation. The misunderstanding is, oh, God forgives, so I don't need to be rigorous to obey. That's what you might read when you hear this. Oh, God forgives, he's cavalier towards sin. Well, that's not the case. Good works are necessary unto salvation. Obedience is necessary unto salvation. Not that you would be confirmed as justified 
or declared not guilty, but they are necessary to declare that living faith is alive and at work in the heart. They are the fruit on the tree that says the fruit or that the tree is alive. James says it this way, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works, is not obedient, is not following the commands of Jesus? So also by faith, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. We cannot be indifferent to obedience. We cannot be indifferent to sin that we commit. Hebrews chapter 12 says, Strive because without holiness no one will see the Lord. And friends, I have said this a lot recently. Many of us have become okay with what God is not okay with. We have become casual with what grieves the heart of God and sent the Savior to the cross. The reason I did this backwards and looped around is because the very reason the Father had to say no to the Son was because we are so cavalier towards sin. It's because we are sinful wrecks that need and a perfect Savior to die in our place. We must refuse to be okay with what God is not okay with. We have become okay with a low level of deceit. A low level of hiding as the world would define it. We've become okay with it. When Solomon says it's the little foxes that ruin the vineyard. We've become okay with Angry outbursts. When we do them, it's justified. When others do them, it's an unjust violation of our rights. We've become okay with our angry outbursts. We've become okay about fantasizing over the life we wish we had. Not currently living lives of love but living in a fantasy world, wishing for something else. Fantasizing over the relationship we wish we had or the position we believe we deserve. We have been called to love. We have been called to put others' needs above our own. We have become okay with what God is not okay with. Obedience declares that Jesus is beautiful. Obedience declares that faith is alive. What are the people of God meant to be characterized by? They're meant to be characterized by love and forgiveness and sacrifice and generosity and purity. Paul says, don't even let a hint of sexual immorality come over God's people. A hint, a smell, a taste. God's people are meant to be characterized by prayer and soaking in God's word and living by his ways. These things declare that Jesus is alive in the heart. And so, good works are necessary unto salvation. They are not what is the grounds of your salvation, that is faith alone. But faith alone in Christ Jesus never stays alone. It produces fruit. So hear that and run towards Jesus in obedience because He loves you so much and gave His life for you. Here's the second misnomer. The second misnomer are good works are not even possible. Some of us, when we go to obey, we are so aware of our imperfections, we just don't even know if we can really even please God at all. Have you ever been there? 
I'll pray, but I'm not saying it right. I've got all kinds of crazy emotions going on. Sometimes I feel like I'm pure. Other times I don't feel like I'm pure. Like, and then what about love? Well, I'm going to love this person, but how do I know I didn't do that in order just so that they might like me? How do I know that I didn't do that in order that, you know, I might look good in front of other people? And so many times you don't even do that because you're afraid of the imperfect motives that are going on in the heart. And so we'll quote Isaiah 64. All of our deeds are like filthy rags. We can't do anything good. That passage is specifically about sheer obedience on the outside with not a trust in God. It's not about the need for us to obey perfectly in every way to the nth degree. Here's a category that Kevin DeYoung sent out, and he said this. Good works can be truly good without being perfectly good. Good works can be truly good without being perfectly good. Meaning, you can go and obey and still have all kinds of crazy imperfections going on in your desire to obey, in your prayers, in your love, whatever it is, and it still can be pleasing to God. Many of us struggle to obey because we constantly feel like we're failures. We, we won't ever measure up. And so it crushes us and we crush others when we put that upon them as well. Good works can be truly good without being perfectly good. Kevin DeYoung used this illustration. He says, what if I told my kid to go up and clean the room? Would you please go clean your room? And they immediately went up. And they had stuff scattered all over the floor. And they were picking it up and folding clothes and putting it in drawers and trying to make up the bed. And you walk up and you just kind of peek around and you observe all that. And they're they're going around. And then they come out the front door. You kind of back up. And they come out the front door and they were like, I'm done, Dad. And you walk in and you see the bed. The sheets are still kind of hanging out. You look at the drawers and there's... It feels like every one of them are a jar pulled out a little bit and the shirts are kind of hanging over the edge. They're not on the floor anymore, but now they're kind of flowing out the drawer. And you look in there and you have a decision as a parent. Why didn't you make that bed up perfectly? Why didn't you get all those clothes into that drawer rightly? I would argue bad parenting. The other way is to celebrate. Thank you so much for going right away when dad asked you. Thank you so much for picking up those clothes. Could you have done it better? Yes, you could have. Could you have made up that bed better? Yes, you could have. But are you pleased at their obedience? Yes, you are. In your holy moments of parenting. Yes, you are. Our Father is pleased with your imperfect obedience because good works can be truly good even though they're not perfectly good. I was reading a book by Richard Sibbs and he says this, our weakness, that is, our imperfections should not keep us from duty. They should not keep us from seeking to obey. Instead, it should encourage us to obedience, to duty, that Christ will not quench a smoking flax. What's that mean? When you have a candle and it begins to burn out, the wick gets shorter and shorter, and that flame, which was really bright, now all of a sudden, you just barely see a flicker. He uses that in Isaiah 42 as an image for weakness. Our weakness, our fragility. And he says that Jesus doesn't come and just put out the candle. Instead, he blows on it so that the flame will get bigger. And so, he says, Christ will not quench the smoking flax, but blow on it till it flames. Some are loath, grieved to do good because they feel their hearts rebelling 
and the duties turn out badly. But hear this. This was one of the most precious lines I had read in so long. Christ looks more at the good in them which he means to cherish than the ill in them which he means to abolish. You follow that? He looks in all of your imperfect ways of love, in all of your imperfect ways of prayer, in all of your imperfection, he looks at the good in them and eats it like a good fruit and enjoys it and cherishes you even though there is still some ill that he needs to abolish. He's the good parent who says, I love you, thank you for obeying. This is meant to free us up because moms out there, you are all imperfect. Every one of you. And the condition of your children is not contingent upon your perfection, but upon Christ's. When you are honest about your weakness, then you will, imperfect though you are, fall at the feet of Jesus and call out and ask Him to do what you can't do. You can't ultimately change those kids. And how many moms, how many times have I heard they would have done differently if I would have just been different? Sure, your anger has consequences. Sure, the fact that you Struggle to spend time in God's Word. That has consequences with your emotional stability. So, run after God. Run after Him. That's where joy is found. But at the end of the day, His perfect plan goes forward with imperfection. All interwoven. He just chooses to use imperfect people. And so... It's okay to be imperfect. It's okay to be fragile. It's okay to not have everything together. I have said this more recently than, than I can count. I do believe and I am fully convinced that every single one of the counseling sessions that I have been a part of have been fraught with imperfection. I could not have said that two or three years ago. I would have put stock in my ability to articulate or counsel in those moments and I would have been terrified if someone came to me and said, no, that wasn't quite right, or no, that wasn't quite accurate, or no, that wasn't quite helpful. I would have been crushed because everything was about me being perfect. Do you see the freedom that comes when I have a confidence, a confidence in a praying Savior who looked at Peter in the midst of his imperfections and he says, I've prayed for you that your faith won't fail. And when you turn again, I'm going to use you as imperfect as you are to strengthen those around you. That's how I've set up my kingdom. He will use your imperfections and your imperfections and yours and mine to do great things. So I'm okay with being imperfect in a counseling room. Because my hope is not in my perfection. My hope is in a perfect Savior who surrendered perfectly and who has a perfect plan that I can trust every moment of every day. So what are you going to do with your imperfect devotion? I pray. I pray you will resist the devil. And you will not become okay with what God is not okay with. You will fight for holiness. Because that is where your greatest joy will be found. But also, friends, when you sin, you would know you have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ the righteous. Who surrendered perfectly. Gave his life in your place. Overcame the grave so that he will use imperfect people to do his perfect work. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you are perfect so that we don't have to be. It's a burden too heavy for any of us to bear. Your plan is not contingent upon our perfection. And so help us. Help us not to focus in on our failures. Help us not to focus in on our regrets. Help us to focus in on your perfection, your goodness, your work in our place that you cherish. You cherish our imperfect obedience and you love it and you are pleased with it and you are smiling over us in it. 
Father, help us to run after you as one who is happy. Help us to run after you as one who has communicated that every one of us in here are valuable because you gave your only son to die in our place. Father, please, I ask, oh God, that in our imperfection, we would have a confidence when we leave here that we can be used for your name because you are praying for us right now, right now. And so some of us need to turn from sin that we have become way too casual with. Oh God, set people free in this moment right now. Set the hearts loose that have been captivated by lust or lying or addiction or indifference to your word and prayer. Set people free into your loving arms right now. 